Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 27 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week we're in all new ground. We've set aside shuttling back and forth between all the different gospels and now we're going straight into Acts. We're going to do Acts 1 through 5 today. And this is sort of what you see, you get to see discipleship in action. Not that we didn't see that in the gospels, but there's starting to be a removal process where they are detaching a little bit from having the Savior right next to them and heading into this whole new phase where they need to put things to the test. I talked recently, I was speaking at a girls camp and it was on the first night of camp. And I was talking about Elder Lund's conference talk about becoming a Saturday girl. And you know, that conference talk where he said, basically his wife told the whole group of girls that was coming that the girls they were on Tuesday are not the same girls who are going to come back on Saturday, that they're going to spend this week in deep discipleship, you know, singing together, praying together, eating together, doing all these holy habits. And if they would just hold on to those holy habits as they go home, then they would become something different. They would be able to carry on and do incredible things. That's kind of what I see with the Acts of the Apostles. You see Luke, Luke's the author of Acts. So you, some people see this as almost like a Luke part two, because he essentially is writing down for us how the apostles act. Now that they've had this time with the Savior, this intense time of learning and seeing his example, now we get to see how they put it into action without him right there. And I think that's really beautiful that you have this transition phase for the first 40 days, even though we don't have much information on these first 40 days, the Savior is with them to some degree, teaching them, tutoring them. And then by the time we get into Acts 2, you guys, they're sort of on their own. But he does these beautiful things to help them, to help create this transition and help them become who they were intended to become. I think a big thing you're going to see this week is you see a massive transition in these apostles from where we were last week, where they were wrestling with a lot of things and trying to understand, to this week, where they will stand nobly and boldly, and they will they will testify and baptize. What's remarkable to me is, I almost wonder if it would have been easier for them to get called to go serve the world first, because they've just felt the sting of having the multitudes vote against Jesus and vote to release Barabbas. They've just felt the pain of seeing all these people turn against their Savior and the leadership crucify the Savior. And now they have to go right back to this town and try to convert them, which means they've got to forgive them. And I just feel like there is um, a remarkable evidence of the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ that all these apostles can that all of these men stay in Jerusalem, just like he asked them to, and they begin to preach and teach the word of God, and thousands come. By the time we get to the end of this week's study, there are thousands upon thousands of people who have gravitated to this church, to this new beginning church that the Lord set up, and it is just an incredible transition to watch. I promise you're going to love this week's study. It's smooth. There's little flipping back and forth. It's just this really comforting belief that you'll build about the work of God rolling forth, how quickly it happens and how much we get to be a part of it. If like the apostles in these chapters, we choose to be all in. I promise you're going to love it. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started.
as I was trying to think through and process all the things I studied this week uh, that happened in these first five chapters of Acts, the visual that came to my mind was my paragliding lessons. <laughs> I'm going to explain why, but let me let me set the stage a little bit. So a couple of years ago, I asked Jason for paragliding lessons because we live in a place where there's a big drop off and lots of people jump off the edge of a mountain, you guys, and then just float gently. They like float in the air and it looks magical. And I was like, I'm in, I want to learn how to paraglide. In my mind, when I asked for that for Mother's Day, I thought what that meant is I was going to have a guy strapped to my back and I was going to jump and I was going to be completely safe and it would be this glorious experience. What I learned is that when you actually go to paragliding lessons, there's no one strapped to your back. <laughs> so they take the first lesson and they just teach you all the stuff, right? There's a coach right there next to you. They teach you what all the straps do and how to steer and all the things, right? I spent like an hour just learning from this one guy without ever letting my feet leave the ground, how to take care of the shoot and do all the stuff, right? Then the next phase, when I show up to actually practice paragliding and learn, I realize that there's nobody on my back. They just give you this earpiece and you're supposed to be able to listen to that same coach give you guidance in the air. Now, granted, you don't jump off the top first. You kind of start low. You like hike yourself up the mountain a little bit and then you launch. And then over the course of time, you work your way up to the very top of the mountain and you just have this coach in your ear guiding you all the time on what strap to pull and what to do. And you guys, that's how I see these first five books of Acts. Because essentially what happens is you have this middle phase where the Savior is with them. For about 40 days after he is resurrected, he's going to be with them. I don't think that means he's there constantly. I just think he's present and it's not written down, which I think is fascinating. It tells you something about the nature of what occurred in these 40 days. Because it's not... It's not for general consumption. It is something that is specific to the apostles. In fact, if you look in Luke's account, you can see that in verse three, he talks about after the passion or after the suffering of the savior, there were this, this phase of the sharing of infallible proofs. And I think that means a couple different things. In fact, if you look in the verse, you can see that they're speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God as they're assembled together. I think this means they're probably getting some actual boots on the ground instruction, right? How to organize into wards and branches and stakes and things like that. How, you know, interviews need to go. All those things that we have handbooks for now and in whatever form they were back in Peter's day, they, they needed to set that up, get some structure in place. And I think some of this instruction phase is about structure. I think a big piece of it is probably much deeper where the savior spent time expounding the scriptures and even performing, you know, inviting them to participate in ordinances and things that can't be written, but that will empower his apostles to do the work they need to do. The reason I think all that is because of what we've read in the other scriptures, right? You see that in the Book of Mormon after he comes with his apostles, you see a phase like that. You see it in spades in the Doctrine and Covenants. You guys, this sounds like Kirtland to me. It's it's this, they're going to be that very beginning church that needs to grow rapidly. And in order for that to happen, there's got to be structure set up and there needs to be an endowment of power. So I think that's what's happening here. In fact, I love that we got a chance to study Doctrine and Covenants first before we jump in here. So I had some sort of framework to work with. And you can go in the notes and learn more about those connections. But that's what this 40 days is like. We don't have much of the writing about it, but we know what occurred. The same way I don't have a lot of writing about what was taught in the School of the Prophets, but I know what occurred. I don't have a lot of writing about what happened in the Kirtland Temple or the Nauvoo Temple, but I know what occurred. And that's a powerful thing to understand that that sets the stage for all the growth that's going to come next. And when you go a little bit further, you can see 
what is still coming. So interestingly, these apostles still are piecing together truth. He's been expounding scriptures to them. They're, I'm sure they're getting it more than they used to, but they still are hoping for a kingdom of Israel, this united kingdom where the South and the North come back together and they are their own nation again. They're all hoping for that. So they ask him in verse six, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And in seven, he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. And then he promises them something. He's basically told them, no, I'm not telling you that, <laughs> which is, I'll talk about that in a second. And then he promises what he'll do instead. You know how sometimes I think the Lord answers the prayers we didn't ask, that he answers the prayers we should have asked. That's, I feel like what's happening here, because he basically says to them, I can't give you that. It's God's will not to tell you those times and seasons just yet but you shall receive power. And after that, the Holy Ghost. Those are the two pieces that they really need in order to make this work. They think they need that answer. And what he's saying is, you really don't need that. You need something much more daily. Here's how this, uh, I think, applies to you and me. There are lots of times when I pray that I think I need or think I really want a certain kind of answer. I don't even think I'm trying to script what the answer is for God. I just want an answer. So you probably have something in your life. But for me, the one that always comes to mind is the sealed book story. So if you've been with me for a while, you may have heard this before. I just taught it to some ladies up in Idaho. But I just think it's when I was struggling. So Jason was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and his survival rates were ridiculously small. And at the very beginning, I was a bit paralyzed because I couldn't get an answer to what was going to happen to him. I felt like I could handle either option. I, I certainly hoped and prayed and sought that he would live. But I felt like if, if I just knew that he wasn't going to live, then I could map my life out and I could make choices financially and with my education and with my job. And I could, if he would just tell me if he was going to live or not, then I could move forward in faith in either direction. But I needed to know. <laughs> and I couldn't get an answer. I wanted one. I felt like I should have had one and I couldn't get one. We sought priesthood blessings, not specifically for that answer, but that's what I was always listening for and couldn't get clarity. And it wasn't until I was studying in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I'll have to give you the short version, but I was reading about Joseph translating the plates and how he, there's a portion of the plates that are sealed. And it was fascinating to me that he could finish publishing the book and put his stamp on it, meaning like he endorsed it with his life and his blood without ever reading the last part of the book. You know, I can't imagine doing that like at book club, wholeheartedly endorsing a book without reading the last third. You know, like that would never happen to any of us. But Joseph Smith was so certain in what had been written and what the Lord was asking him to do that he published a sealed book and put his life on the line and his Emma's life and everyone, you know, like he was willing to have that much faith. And that's when I started to understand the reason I couldn't get the answer to my question about Jason was because it was a sealed book. That revelation, I didn't need to know. In fact, if I was going to have a close relationship with God, he couldn't tell me the times and seasons of Jason's mortality. He wanted me to come to him daily. It's almost like he had manna waiting for me and was saying, I'm going to give you every day what you need. I'll give you the Holy Ghost. I'll give you power. Those are the things that will really help you, Maria. It's not the big times and seasons. I want you daily to come to me. I didn't like 
that answer at first, but I came to realize that it was empowering, that that's where I could rest. Because when the cancer came back a couple times, like I could, then I knew, okay, it's a sealed book. He's not going to tell me the times and the seasons. I just need to act in faith. I need to trust that he's blessed me with power and I have the gift of the Holy Ghost. I can move forward and make all those mini decisions. It really helped me with my discipleship. And I love that you can see a piece of that here with the apostles where they are, they don't get all the information they want to know, even though they're learning at this rapid rate and growing and expanding in light and knowledge, they don't get to know all the mysteries. There are some that are sealed and they just need to know that he's blessed them with power and the gift of the Holy Ghost and what they need will come. So when you go a little further, you'll see how that plays out there. He's taken up. So he goes up in a cloud and ascends and they all stand and watch. And then they, I think, are a little frozen. You know, this is the moment when instead of having the coach right next to you, they say, well, not this first leap, you're going to jump. You know, so they're just like anxiously looking into heaven. And what's gracious about the way the Savior does things is even though he can't be with them in this moment, he sends angels who can. So there's these two angels and they say, basically, why are you still looking into heaven? I don't think this is condescension. I don't think they're coming down on the apostles. I think they know exactly why they're looking up in heaven. But I do think they're saying like, it's time to get going. You have all that you need to get moving. Let's begin. And so they, they begin. And the first thing they're going to run into is that they are not a full quorum. And that's a problem. And so Peter, who is now kind of stepping up into his leadership role, recognizes that problem and tries to put it to the group to solve it. What you see right before that, though, is that this congregation is knit together. So if you look in 14, you can see that they're all coming together, just like the Savior invited them to do, to gather often, to draw strength from each other, because they're going to need it. You know, they've been through something excruciating and remarkable, and now they're going to need each other's testimony. So in 13, and these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. So those brothers or half-brothers of Jesus who were against him before have now come full circle. Mary has all of her kids in this cause and now they're moving forward in faith. It just feels to me like Fayette. You know, remember in the Doctrine and Covenants when we studied this and they were like that first meeting of the saints. I think there's like six of them there and they are, it's, you know, it's in this log home. Like they're, they're, this is, you know, they're just beginning. It's this humble beginning and what Joseph teaches and prophesizes that it will grow to be this incredible church. And that's kind of what's happening in Acts. So much of this felt familiar to me. If you look in 15, you can see that their group size is 120. The Savior's been living among them for three years, performing these miracles and teachings, and there's only 120 people who've converted. I don't know if that means a bunch of others fell away. I, I don't know what this number represents exactly, but I do kind of love that it's so small because the Savior's mission was not so much to do missionary work when he was there. His job was to teach the doctrine and exemplify the doctrine so that the missionaries who would come next could go to all the world. The same way Joseph Smith doesn't go to all the world, he sends apostles out. It's the same kind of notion, right? So he's he's set the stage for them so that they'll have what they need to go out and and increase. And we're right at that nexus where it's about to shift, you know, where you're going to see people start to come in. But the first thing you need to do is make that quorum. So if you go on the verses and in the notes, you can learn a little bit more. But essentially, because Judas betrayed, and the, Peter will reference that that was prophesied by the Lord that that would happen, and now they need to replace him. What I do love is how they replace him. I think it's 
very similar to what we see today, that they present their best guests. You know, they look at all the different men who are worthy, different men who have been witnesses from the very beginning. So they mentioned that this, these men have been witnesses from the baptism of Jesus all the way through his resurrection, that they are, they will be powerful witnesses. They do the very best they can to present options to God. And then they cast lots, which is a way that back in this day, they would determine the will of God. And then they know who needs to be called. Indeed, Matthias will replace Judas Iscariot. What's cool to me is this call is not one for fanfare. In fact, I wonder if, this is terrible, but I wonder sometimes if Matthias was like, don't pick me. You know, like it's the same way there are times when we move into a new ward and like you learn that the Relief Society president is about to get released and you're like, oh, don't pick me. I, you know, like it's just a, you, the natural man in me is weak, right? But what you have to remember is this is an invitation to serve and to grow and to do, to be accountable for this great work rolling forth. And so I don't know anything about Matthias's heart or the other man, but I, I love knowing that they both have this opportunity. It's not that one is favored over the other necessarily. It's just that one is called. And so Matthias is called. Now they've got a quorum again, and now it's time to roll into action. Chapter two kicks off on the day of Pentecost, which is another one of those Jewish feasts. I mean, they didn't call it Pentecost. They call it the Feast of Weeks or of the Harvest. This is a time to celebrate the harvest of wheat that is coming in that they're going to gather, which just fits perfectly with what's about to happen, right? This is, I mean, they're in a place where the fields around them are literally white and they're about to learn about how they're going to go out and harvest. And the tool that they're going to use is not a sickle. It is the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. For whatever reason, while the Savior was among them, they didn't have the fullness of the gift of the Holy Ghost. And now it will come. We're nine days after the ascension, about 50 days after the crucifixion. And this is when things shift, not just for the apostles, but for all those who are gathered. I love that happens while they're gathered. I think it's why we gather, you guys, because we're supposed to be in these situations where we feel something all together and we can look at each other and be like, did you feel that? Do you remember when that happened? Like there's power and safety in gathering. So if you look in verse one on the day of Pentecost and then two, suddenly there came as they were gathered in one place with one accord, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. There's so many things I like about this. I love that this is an individual experience that's happening in a group. To me, that's what the sacrament is. It's a very individual, internal experience that I get to have every week with a whole bunch of other people. It's A lot of ordinances are like that, um, where we experience them together, but they're so uniquely for us. So I love that that piece happens here. I also love that they hear a sound like a rushing wind, but they don't feel a rushing wind. This might be me projecting onto these early disciples, but I used to think it would be the opposite. I actually thought like as a teenager, I've taught you guys about this. There's a whole YouTube video I made for teenagers about this, but I used to think that I would recognize the Holy Ghost because of something that I would feel on, on my body somehow. Like I thought my heart would pound. I thought my hairs on my arms would stand up or that I'd feel chills or I thought the Holy Ghost would make me feel something tangible and then I would know he was there. What I've come to learn, at least for me, is that usually the Holy Ghost is something that I can't feel, but I 
hear. It's not audible, but it's like I can, the same way, I'm not a music person like at all, but I can tell when there's a harmony, right? In fact, it's so soothing to hear a chord played right by my kids or someone else's kids. When they play a chord or when several voices sing and there's this beautiful harmony, my, my ears can hear it and it settles into my heart. It's this sweetness, even though I couldn't tell you how or what notes they're singing. That's how I feel about the Holy Ghost. For me, it's a harmony. When I feel new doctrine or new light or new understanding harmonize with what I already know, there is this, uh, there's a harmony that happens for me and I hear it even though I don't hear it. And I don't feel anything usually. (laughs) There's no crazy sensations that happen to me physically. Those sometimes come later, but for me it's that I hear first and then I understand later. And so I I kind of loved that you see a little bit of that here. It was reassuring to me, at least. Um, so they each get this experience, and then they speak in tongues, which is an odd beginning, except for it tells them very clearly what it is they're supposed to do, which means I'm giving you this gift so that you will speak. It, they're not supposed to just get this witness for themselves and then relish in the testimony that they have and then continue to gather as 120 saints. They're supposed to grow. And I think the big way the Spirit is teaching them that is they're saying, look, I'm giving you a way to speak to everybody else. So if you look in the rest of the chapter, you can see that they go out and the apostles are able to speak to people in their own native languages. Remember, this is a pilgrimage feast. So people are coming from all over the known world to gather to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this feast. And that means you've got people from all different countries and different dialects and languages. And when they hear the apostles speak in their own tongue, they stop in their tracks. You can just... There's a, a power and a magnetism to it. It makes you just feel for these people. I don't know if they've actually lived in Jerusalem for years, and this is the first time they've heard someone speak their mother tongue. You know, like, you almost wonder if the apostles sound like their dad. Or, you know, like, there must be some registering that happens because they stop and they listen and they marvel. So if you look in the verses, you can see that they stop in, in 12. There, he lists all the different places. And if you go in the notes, you can see on the maps that I give you that this is a broad range of places that they're able to speak in their native tongue. So they're able to encounter anybody on the street and speak to them no matter where they came, came from about God and about Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so you can see them doing this amazing work. And then in 11, we do hear them speak in our tongue, the wonderful works of God. And 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? They, they don't understand how this is possible. Most of them know that these men are from Galilee, that they're probably fishermen. And how, how could this happen? And then you see some who mock. So in 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But then Peter stands up. Okay, this week, you guys, you're going to see Peter stand up. It is, it is not in a cocky, you know, that kind of draw attention to myself kind of way, but in a like, I know who I am and I know who I'm trusted, who I've trusted. And I am, I'm here to do a work. This is one of those moments. There's another one coming. He stands up and he calls out to the men of Jerusalem and says, hearken to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But that is, it is spoken by the prophet Joel. He's saying, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Your scrolls that you revere, you know, because these are Jews coming from all different parts of the world to gather for this feast, saying, you've studied this in the scrolls. This is a prophecy being fulfilled that when the Messiah comes, there will be signs that follow. And this is one of them. So he's trying to help them understand this pouring out of the spirit is expected. 
And then he shares the prophecy. What I like about this is Peter now has learned that the way to catch hearts is not just to dazzle them. You know, this this miracle of being able to speak in a mother tongue of whoever it is you're speaking to is enough to catch their attention. It's not enough to catch their heart. Peter knows that in order to catch their heart, he has to expound the scriptures because he needs them to stretch their understanding of the Old Testament scrolls in order to fit this new doctrine of Jesus Christ. You know, it's relatively new, even for Peter and the apostles. They just had 40 days to kind of study and learn it all. And now they're starting to get it. And they realize that's the way we help people accept the Savior is we need them to stretch so that he expounds the scriptures. And you'll see him do that throughout this chapter. So he teaches them about Jesus of Nazareth. In 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you from by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him. He's not just saying that there will be a Messiah. He's saying there has been. He is still. In fact, we are witnesses that he lives. That's what he's trying to teach all these people in their own native language. I love that because you see the same thing happen in the Book of Mormon. You see a promise that the Lord will speak to people in their language and their understanding. So based on wherever they are in their testimony or however much they understand the scrolls, he will, Holy Ghost can connect to any level. I love that as a teacher, both in my family and in, you know, like when I teach my YSAs, because in both those settings, I've got people at all different levels. You know, at home, I've got Violet, who's 10 and up to like, sometimes Hannah's home and she's 23. She's been on a mission. They have very different understandings, but I can teach all of them if I have the Holy Ghost with me. Same thing happens in my YSA class. I've got some who come who aren't even members of the church. That was, you know, that was scary and exciting. And then I have some who come who know the doctrine pretty well. And the Holy Ghost is the tool that I use to help me teach all of them. Really what I do is facilitate and he teaches all of them, but that's kind of what you see play out here with the apostles as well. So they teach about how they are witnesses of Jesus Christ. And then they expound scripture. And then there is a hearts that are changed. So if you look in 37, it says that there is a, the result is they are pricked in their hearts. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is, you know, that golden teaching opportunity moment where Peter could do any number of things. And what he does is he focuses on the fundamentals of the, you know, first principles and ordinances of the gospel. He teaches them about baptism. He teaches them about repentance and remission of sins. It is this pivotal cementing doctrine. Because when people are ready and they want to learn more, you have to begin there. We can't jump to something big yet. They need that, you know, milk before meat. And Peter gets that. I think it's probably part of what he learned from the Savior in those 40 days is not just that you need to teach and that you're going to teach my doctrine, but let me show you how to teach my doctrine and the order it needs to happen. The same way we have that new Preach My Gospel manual now, you know, the revised one that just came out. It's that same idea. Let me show you how to teach when you have people who are eager to learn. Let me give you answers and help you know the order of teaching. And where you always begin is with faith, with baptism and the remission of sins. And then he promises big things. So in 30, 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Anyone who wants a seat at this table can come. That's Peter's words. Even the people who are in this city and were a part of the atrocities that happened just 50 days earlier to Jesus Christ, they can have a seat at the table if they will come to him and abide by these steps. And so that's what he invites them to do. 40, save yourselves from this untoward generation. In that day, 
because of the gift of the Holy Ghost that's among them, because of the miracles that are evident, because Peter interacts with these people in the way that the Savior has taught him to, there is a massive change. I mean, 3,000 souls convert. That's what you see in the next verse. That same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine going from a ward of 120 to a ward of 3,120? That's, that's growth. That's what happens when hearts are pricked, when the Holy Ghost is, you know, among those who are worthy to teach, and then there is change. You have hearts that are opened and responsive, and they're taught the doctrine in the right way, and so they go forward. I think it's why we have to study the Preach My Gospel manual, because that's what it's designed to help you do, is to be in the spot where Peter was and allow the Spirit to work a mighty work. And growth comes to the church when that happens. So then you see that they don't just convert, but that they continue. I, I kind of love that piece added on in 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The apostles aren't just seeking to add to their numbers. They're trying to add people to this vast network of hearts that are knit. It's a big important piece of what the apostles are asking us to do as they go out and take the gospel to the world. Our job is to bring people in and knit their hearts to ours, you know, to seek after them and to fellowship them and minister to them. That's, that was happening in this early congregation. And then they talk about how they continue, that they have all things in common. This is around verse 44. They all sell their possessions and they, they live in harmony with each other. We're going to see this more in the next chapter, but I think it's a really powerful thing that you don't see a command for this to happen. At least it's not written, that there was no directive that they had to live with all things in common. I actually think it's just a natural extension of coming to understand the gospel. You know, when you understand the gospel and the covenants, even just baptismal covenants, you naturally give and serve and offer. I only know that from, you know, personal experience. I'm sure you've seen it too, but like even in my family's family reunions, when we all show up, like everybody steps up, everybody helps. Every, there's no, nobody worries about property. Nobody worries about being first in line. Like you just live communally in peace because everybody's hearts are in the same space and you all want to let go of possessions and hold on to something better. And I think you see that in these verses. So they lived, they continued daily in 46 with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. These missionaries are going out house to house. It's almost like the beginning of, remember Alma when he leaves King Noah's court and he hasn't gone to the waters of Mormon yet? He's just growing the church. And so he goes house to house and teaches them. That's the phase we're in with these apostles. And they have this singleness of heart. That's what's phrased in 46. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Should be saved. I love that because they don't say the apostles added to the church daily. The Lord is adding to his church. He's got this field that is white and ready to harvest. And he's got the Holy Ghost with his disciples, his apostles. And now all that he hoped can happen. You know, those who are ready can be brought in. It's the exact same spot that we're in today. When our prophet invites us to go and be a part of this great work of gathering, he's basically saying, Maria, go any direction. The field is white everywhere around you. Go any direction and use the tools I've given you and go and gather in my children. I just think there's some beautiful parallels to our day that you can pull out of chapter two. To be honest, I was a little concerned that I wouldn't love the book of Acts just because I, I really loved studying the miracles of the Savior, especially in such depth. And I thought it would be hard to leave those behind. What's so great about Acts, you guys, especially where you are in Acts 3, is you it almost seems like the Savior is in chapter 3. 
And I think that's the beauty of this discipleship that's happened with Peter, where he has changed. I think he's taken on the characteristics and the mannerisms of Christ so that you recognize Christ as Peter and John act. There's the closest I can get to a comparison. I was thinking of nobody ever compares me and my mom as saying we look a lot alike. That almost never happens. My mom has really dark hair. We have different features. We just don't look a lot alike. And so I almost never have someone stop me and say, oh, are you Sally's daughter? That just doesn't happen unless I'm teaching. <laughs> I just have found this really fascinating. When people hear me teach or see, like I even subbed in her class a couple of times when she taught Institute for forever, they saw her mannerisms in me and my love of the gospel and the scriptures sounds like her because I learned it from her. You know, my, the way I teach even is similar to her. So people, when I would teach would be like, oh, are you Sally Wine's daughter? <laughs> but that doesn't happen to me in any other sphere. And I think that's what's sort of happening here. You see Peter look like the savior and sound like the savior, even though I know he doesn't look like the savior or probably doesn't even sound like the savior. He's just taken on his countenance. And you'll see it in this first miracle. There's a man who's lame. He's been lame since his birth. And daily he's placed at the temple in order to ask for alms. And when he sees Peter and John coming to the temple, he thinks, he, I'm, I'm sure he's assuming he can solicit them for alms. I mean, he probably doesn't know that they live all things in common and have like nothing, no, no personal possessions. But he's, I think, hoping that they have something to offer. And then Peter, the way the Savior would, says to this man, look on me. That's in verse four. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John saying, look on us. There is um, dignity, right? He, Peter and John have seen Jesus Christ in every miracle establish dignity. Before that person is healed, they help them understand their worth to God. And I feel like that's what that means when he says, look on us. It's you can see us. Like we have a relationship. I am not higher than you. I am in this with you. Let me help you look on us. And when he does expecting that he'll get something, Peter answers him and says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's his invitation. It is, um, I think it's one of the reasons we're asked to live in this consecrated way, even today in our time, because you don't get too attached to things and it's not, it's not hard to give those up. But in Peter's case, he can't give him any of those things and he knows they won't bring him happiness. So he gives him what he can give him. And that is this gift of healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he does. And then you just have to wait, love the way the miracle plays out in seven. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He doesn't just get a healing or an alignment of his bones, he gets the strength he needs to go forward. Remember, we studied that with the Savior. Several of his miracles are like that, where somehow they skip over the whole physical therapy phase. You know, they go from having no mobility to being able to leap and jump. In fact, when you turn the page, you see him do it in eight. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew him. They, they recognized him from the gate of the temple and they're in wonder. In fact, that's what it says. They were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them, greatly wondering. So you almost picture this man between the shoulders of Peter and John. You know, I don't think they just lift him up and say, well, you're good now. They like help him walk. You know, they're, I, I don't know. 
I don't know how this plays out, but I almost picture it like when you help a little kid walk, you know, that you hold their hands, they're building up their strength, they're learning how to use their coordination. And so you put your hands in their little toddler fingers and they learn to walk. And you almost picture that happening with these two mighty apostles who are helping him into the temple because they stay close. In fact, you can see in the next few verses, it says that he held on to them. And 11, as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together. They're, they're helping him progress. And where he wants to go is into the temple. I mean, think about just that piece of his discipleship. I don't, we know later that this man is over 40 years old. That means he's been sitting at the gates of the temple for decades, probably. Maybe he heard the Savior's teaching. Maybe he saw the group, you know, cruise past him towards a different gate. I don't know. I don't know if he believed in the Savior or if if his miracle was reserved for this time and this place. But I love that this is where this happens, because this is where Peter and John have seen miracles happen, and now they get to help a miracle occur. And I just think it's beautiful. The way it plays out is beautiful. And this man now becomes a witness. He's not a special witness of the resurrection like the apostles are, but he is a witness that there that there is a name that can change. You know, this That's what Peter emphasizes over and over again, that it is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that has caused this power to occur. That's what you see in 16. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith by which is in him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Because people are coming to Peter and saying, how is this done? And he immediately defers to Jesus Christ and the power of his name. In fact, you see that in 12. Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power and holiness we've made this man to walk? He's learned from seeing the Savior for three years defer to God the Father and talk about God the Father's power and God the Father's invitation to do good and doing the will of the Father. And Peter has taken on that same countenance, you know, a countenance of this isn't me. Peter, I think, knows exactly who he is. He knows how small he is, the same way all of us know how small we are. And I think he knows he's a fisherman and he knows he's somebody that's even denied the Savior. He has weaknesses and vulnerabilities and he knows how to get past them. And so now he will help and he will lift and he will lead. And it's just... I just love Peter in these chapters. I'm sure John as well, but I love the way Peter rises in these moments. Um, to me, it's a lot like that when I first started to catch air, you know, when I was paragliding, even low on the mountain range, I hadn't gotten high up yet, but I started to catch air in that first lift. I, I, I can't even tell you what happened in my stomach when I first caught air because it was a little scary. And at the same time, glorious. You know, like I felt this, oh my gosh, this is going to work. And I think that has to be happening to Peter. He launched with this sound in his ear of the Holy Ghost to say like, pay attention to this man, help this man. And when he chose to do it, it, there's this lift and it doesn't just lift him. It lifts this man. It lifts John. It lifts everyone who can see them. There is, the air is caught in that parachute and there is lift. It's a beginning, right? And it's just riveting to, to study it. Okay, so once people are catching, see that, and they're curious about what's going to happen next, Peter does the same thing he's done before. He expounds the scriptures to teach them how they can know what they're feeling and what they're experiencing and where to go from here. So he teaches them the scriptures and he reminds them who they are. The same way President Nelson 
has reminded us that we are children of the covenant. We are disciples of Christ. Like you are a child of God. Don't forget who you are. That's what we see in 25. You're the children of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers saying unto Abraham and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first. God having raised up his son, Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. They are children of the covenant. They're intended to do something. They're not just supposed to learn. They're supposed to get empowerment so that they can go out and serve the greater world. And that's what Peter's inviting them to do. Just remember who you are so that you can be something so much better. Be new creatures. And here's where you begin. It's probably not terribly surprising that not all of Jerusalem is marveling. Some are angry. Those who worked so hard to get rid of Jesus now see a brand new issue arising. And they, I think, wanted to put all that to rest. You know, I think they all washed their hands of Jesus and hoped to be done. And they don't expect this new insurgence of strength and power. And, and they struggle. They're angry. So if you look in the verses, you can see that they get hold of Peter and John and they throw them into prison and they are wrestling with what to do. Um, it's the same group that we saw before. Those select members of the Sanhedrin that conspired against Jesus are still conspiring against these apostles and they question them about authority. The exact same way we saw with Jesus. In fact, I wonder sometimes if they're, what they saw as success with Jesus, if they think they can just comfortably rest on that same strategy and carried out with his apostles. So they ask him about authority. They ask Peter and John, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And then Peter, this is in verse eight, filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to that impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. That is this power-packed moment. To me, it reminds me of, have you ever seen like a reality singing show, you know, like America's Got Talent or something? And, you know, those the videos that get a million or five million views are the ones where this incredible, harmonizing, beautiful sound comes from a ridiculously unexpected source. You know, like you watch the video and if you just heard it, you would think, wow, that person's got pipes. But to watch it and then you learn that it's like a six-year-old or someone who's has all these disabilities or different issues that would make it impossible for them to be able to accomplish what they accomplished on that stage. Those are the videos that we can't take our eyes off of. That's Peter in this moment to me. He is someone that these Sadducees have pushed aside and thought, nothing's going to come from him. We can take care of him. And then he stands to the microphone and when he sings, there is silence. You know, like it is his testimony of the Savior, especially his solidity in his testimony, just reverberates through that room and he is unafraid. And I just think it's incredible to see how it plays off. He then talks to them about what they said at naught. So this is in 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which becometh the head of the corner. I mean, he's not messing around, you guys. He's like, this same man that gave us the power to do this work and make this lame man whole, he's the one you pushed aside, you set at naught. I think there's a really good warning in there for all of us, because there are a lot of things that I tend to set at naught. 
To set it not to me is not so much to completely discount. It's almost to make it seem unimportant. You know, there's a difference. There's this quote from, I can't remember which book it's in, but since C.S. Lewis, I wrote it in my margin on this part. It says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. I think that's what Peter understands. He's like, you have to pick a side here. There is no middle ground. Either he is the son of God or he is not. You cannot relegate him to any other spot. Either he is everything he said he is, and we testify that indeed he is, or he is not, but you can't play the middle. And, and so he's pushing them to this point of decision, and he does it without any fear, which I'm sure they did not anticipate from these little Galilean fishermen, which is why they speak of him like that in 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They, they haven't been trained the way rabbis are supposed to be trained. They haven't experienced the scholarship programs and the, you know, like everything that these other men of the Sanhedrin have gone through. These Galilean fishermen didn't do, and they are confused. You know, the same way when I watch one of those videos of the singers, I'm like, how, how did you do that? How do you have this gift? How? And they, they can't process it. In fact, it angers them. And so if you look in 16, what shall we do to these men for that? Indeed, a notable miracle hath been done by them. It's important to understand that notable miracle doesn't mean they're impressed. Notable means other people have noted it. Other people have seen it happen and have heard the man leap from the temple grounds and praise God. And they, too many people know is what they're saying. It's a notable miracle. People have noted it. Now, what are we going to do? And so they are worried that this rumor is going to spread and they want to extinguish it as fast as possible. And so they basically command him not to sing. You know, I just think it's fascinating to me. That's, that's what they do in 18. And they called them Peter and John and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. That's their solution. You're just not allowed to speak kind of, they're basically taking the microphone away and saying like, we've got control of this. This is our show, our stage. You just don't get to speak. What I love is Peter's response. Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They're Jeremiah in this moment. They're, they've got fire in the bones and they will speak. You take away the microphone, you take that stage away and they will just belt louder. That is their promise. And so that's what they do. And the, the authorities don't know how to process that. You know, they're used to people trembling in fear. They're used to people being intimidated by them. And they don't know how to process courage and valor and the dignity that only comes from being a close associate of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what they recognize here. These are people who've been with Jesus. We see, remember, they, they see him and they're like, this looks familiar. You look familiar because they see the countenance of Christ, I think, in these two apostles' eyes. So when you go further, you can see what happens. They basically let him go because they're afraid of the people. That's the advantage that the apostles have is now a notable miracle has been done. So now the people are afraid. They don't want there to be a riot. They don't want people to turn against them because they feed on the popularity of the people. That's the, that's the scary position to be in because now you get the, the masses who get to decide how you feel and how you act. Where Peter and John are solidly planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and anchored there, they don't care too much what the people think or feel. They love the people. They want to teach the people, but they don't need their popularity and they don't need their praise. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are in a different spot. 
they are dependent. In fact, they feed on that praise and popularity. So now they're paralyzed. And I think it's a good reminder for us because it's really easy, I think, in our world today to feed on popularity and praise and try to adapt my feelings to fit whatever popular culture tells me to think. And I just, I think there's, you can see where that leaves you. It leads you to a road of never feeling certain and never feeling safe. And what I want is security and steadiness like Peter and John. So they go back. What I love is they go back to their group. I kind of wonder, I've been watching on VidAngel, it's kind of similar to The Chosen. There's one called The Testament, I think is what it's called. And it's basically kind of a modern day setting of this phase of the gospel where the apostles are going out and they're almost like revolutionaries, you know, and they're kind of clandestinely going out and teaching people. I just think it's sort of fascinating. But I wonder how much of that is accurate based on what you see in these verses. Because they just go back to their people and they go back and they gather and they pray together and they study the scriptures together and they partake of, you know, the sacrament together. They they go back to their people where the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are in these positions of power and probably have wealth and all kinds of things are afraid. The people who seemingly have nothing go back to steadiness. They gather with people who are just like them and who rally around them. And I just kind of love seeing it play out. As they gather together, they're filled with boldness. That's what happens in 29. And now the Lord behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness, they may speak thy word. That's why they gather because they feed off each other's strength and they pray for boldness. And then together as a group, they're able to go forth and take the message further and trust that signs and wonders will come. That's what you see in 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal that the signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. When you choose to stand in faith the way Peter and John did, when you choose to sing out, no matter how many times the microphone is taken away from you and how many times they try and push you down, when you speak and sing truth boldly, the Lord gives you more. You, you get not just more strength from within, but you also get the steadiness of a group. You know, I think we see this in the Book of Mormon with Nephi. I was just talking to my YSAs about this where you know, Nephi's binding, he's bound by his brothers and there's this, it's in the wilderness before the boat. And he prays for strength to be released from his bonds. And he is, but he also gets strength because his, like the women come and plead for him. He also gets strength because he can forgive them and move forward. There's strength that comes from lots of different places for Nephi. And I feel like that's what's happening with this group as well. They're able to speak with boldness because they have each other. They have the gift of the Holy Ghost and they are on this solid foundation of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So they don't need to be afraid no matter what the world throws at them. And they're not shaken. In fact, in 32, they're of one heart and one soul. And of them that ought the things which he possessed was his own, meaning like they don't need, need none of them have their own possessions. They just kind of like live and pull together um, and they experience the gift of grace. I love the phrasing in 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. I think the reason I like to focus on that phrase, grace, like I taught you last week with Elder Bednar, he said that grace is, whenever you see that word, you can substitute in the divine enabling power of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it is. I don't think it's that they never fought, you guys. I don't think it's that nobody ever accidentally took too much or too little or served more the hours than the other person did and they didn't have squabbles among them. The fact that there is a, this abundant grace means they can get through those squabbles. You know, they wor work out differences. They trust and give each other compassion and the benefit of the doubt. And that's why I think you need that piece 
grace. I don't think it's just that they themselves get along. It's that they have the gift of grace so that they know how to get along and how to resolve things when they're not getting along. I just think all of that's at play here. And that none of them lacked. That's what you see in 34. This communal living, not just property, but their hearts being knit, means no one is lacking and everyone has according to his needs. I think it's why our prophet is teaching us to be peacemakers and to find ways to get along better because he wants this for us. He wants us to set aside all the earthly possessions that keep us guarded and envious. And he wants us to live better and then enjoy life fuller. And that's what you see exemplified in Acts chapter four. Another one of the times you hear echoes of the Savior in the Peter's in Peter's teachings is in chapter five. It's just in a really weird story. So basically what happens is there are two people who are among the followers who consecrate some. So they sell a big piece of their property and they keep back a portion of the proceeds and then consecrate or donate the rest. And it's kind of interesting based on what we learned from the Savior. Remember when the rich young ruler comes and he basically says, like, I've, I've done all these things. I've given my whole life to follow the commandments. But what else do you need from me? And the Savior says, I want you to sell everything you have and follow me. And he kind of freezes in that moment because he, he wants to just give the portion he's already comfortable with giving, not this new one. And we don't know what plays out with him, but we know the Savior's expectations are, I, I need all of you. I want all, I want you all in. And there's some great quotes in the notes if you want to learn more about that concept. But basically, that's what Peter says to him. So this couple comes individually to account for what they've offered. And Peter knows that their offering is incomplete, I'm sure through the help of the Spirit. And so he questions them about it. And I feel like what he's trying to do is teach them. Because Ananias, the husband, comes first. And Peter says to him, like, it's not me you're lying to. You're, you're lying to God in this instance. That's what you can see in verse 4. Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Because basically, I think the crux of the problem here is what they are hoping to do is enjoy the blessings of full discipleship without being full disciples. They want to live in a community where everybody puts everything all in and we all reap the rewards together of this communal living. But I actually don't want to, I don't want to get, you know, like if I went to my family's reunion and I said, I want to eat at every meal and I want to participate, but I don't want to pay dues. And I certainly don't want to have to help with the cleanup. I'll do other things. I just, I'm not going to be on the cleanup crew. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You have to just kind of be all in. That's the only way to show up at a wine family reunion. So I feel like that's, that's what Peter's trying to teach them. And he's like, you, you're missing the point and you're missing a connection with God. When you hold back, you're missing it. What I think must've been really hard for Peter is when the wife comes in, because basically the husband drops dead. He had a chance where he could have come clean to Peter and he doesn't. And kind of like Old Testament style, you know, when Lot drops and <laughs> turns into salt and Uzzah, who steadies the ark, drops down and dies in that moment. It's kind of that sort of feel. When the wife comes in next, Peter, you can see him almost like prompting her to say what is true because he asks her about the price and what she's offered. And she holds her ground and says, yeah, that's, our, that's all we've got. And I just ache for Peter in this moment because he knows what's going to happen, right? He's, he just saw what happened to her husband and she's taking the exact same road and he aches. The visual that came into my mind is, I think this must be a similar feeling on a spiritual level when someone like a bishop or a state president or a priesthood leader of any kind knows that repentance is needed and can tell from the spirit that you need relief and you keep a portion back. 
you know, for, for whatever reason, you just can't be all in and you give a portion of the truth, but you hold some back. And I think the reason that would sadden a priesthood leader so much is because they know that there is abundant grace available. You know, like there is no, all the prophets teach that, right? You can't sing farther than the light of Christ shines. There is grace available to relieve your burdens and to lift the pain and to take away the ache. And they want to extend that to you, but you have to be all in. You have to be honest and say what whatever it is that is needed. And I just think it must've been so hard for Peter to see her hold on to this deceit because it, he knows what's coming. Same way any bishop or state president knows what's coming for me if I choose to hold back. I, I miss a chance to connect with the Savior and to feel real relief. And in this moment, she she falls, right? She is buried with her husband. And then there's this fear about, <laughs> of everybody because they're now very aware that there are consequences to, to not being all in. And so that, that seems to spread. But it doesn't seem to slow the growth of the church. In fact, you can see that multitudes join. Where we started with 120, and then it went to 3,000, then 5,000 more. Now we have multitudes of men and women and children joining the church. And there's um, an outpouring of miracles, I think, probably because as the numbers rise, there are more people to bless and to serve. And so Peter is doing that. He's going out blessing and serving. And he's people are lining the streets with their sick and their wounded, and they're asking Peter to heal. And he heals every single one. That's what it says in 16, that they were healed, everyone. We see that almost verbatim in the Savior's ministry, where people bring their sick out to the streets on stretchers, and he heals them. In fact, it says that they are hoping to be overshadowed by Peter. Like even just the shadow of Peter might do some good. That's the kind of power that Peter has developed. And I don't think it's in any kind of eyes on me way. I think it's it's a lot like the Savior who simply understood who he was and the work he was sent to do and will do it for as many people as he's able to. He will heal and help and lift and convert as many as he is allowed. And so he's he does this great work. And then, of course, that draws attention. So he gets thrown back in prison. Interesting to me, though, that in this particular version of the prison, there's a prison break. And I like this because I think my boys will love this part of the story. <laughs> because what happens is they put Peter and John in prison, and then they go back later to try and retrieve them, and they're not there because an angel has come and released them. So if you look in the verses, this is around 19. An angel came and opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of life. They, the angel has, he's not just going to let them out of prison. He's saying like, you need to get back you need to get back to the exact place where you got in trouble the last time. <laughs> he is essentially saying like, I don't care how many times they take the microphone away from you. You go back and you speak and you teach. The field is white and we haven't gathered them all yet. So go back out. And of course they do. What I think my boys will like is if you look in 23, it says that the prison was truly found shut with all safety measures basically in place and that the keepers are still there. So somehow, you guys, they're able to break out of this prison, not by the walls crumbling down, not by big lightning strikes starting a fire. They're able to just vanish, like teleport. Maybe I don't know. I don't know what happened here, but I think my boys will love it because it sounds like Dr. Strange, you know, when they open up like this portal and a little sparkly fire ring opens and they can just step into another place. That's what it sounds like to me, you guys. I just think it's a really cool prison break story and they're all different, but I kind of like this one. As a result of their going back to the temple to stand and to speak and to sing out their testimonies to anybody that will hear, they're brought back again before the council. And you can tell the council is afraid. 
because how are they going to contain them? And not only that, but if people see that they're able to break out of prison and they constantly say it's in the name of Jesus Christ that they're able to do these mighty works, then, then people are going to, in mass exodus, step away from the Jewish faith and step towards this New Testament and this new you know, doctrine and church that's being built up. So they're afraid. So they say in 28, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You can go in the notes, but this links directly back to what they said during the trials of the Savior, that they they were willing to take that responsibility. In fact, they were going to cast it to their children and their children's children, and they didn't care. And so Peter and the other apostles answer in 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's their answer. Like They're not afraid and they will not be silenced and we shouldn't be either. When you are when you are directed by God to speak and to teach, you should stand and you should speak and you should teach because you'll be protected and there's solidity in that stance. You are on sacred ground and you are protected. That's the promise. I love the way he phrases it in 32. We are his witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them who that obey him. It, Peter's not alone in this, and neither are the apostles or all those disciples who have joined. Because they have the gift of the Holy Ghost, they've got a strength that cannot be shaken. You know, as long as they live worthy of it and they are actively trying to grow, they are, they have power. And I imagine this scares the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they don't know how to handle this kind of confidence. And so it cuts them in 33. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That's the only way they see out of this plan. You can tell Satan's got this waxing cord just around their necks and it's getting tighter and tighter because now they're out of choices. They've tried to imprison them. They've tried to silence them. They can't get that ringing out of their ears. And so they just need to execute. That's their next plan. Thankfully, something gets in the way. So Gamaliel, who is a Pharisee and is a member of the Sanhedrin, stands up and says, let's take a minute. And he slows the pace down. And he basically puts them in a situation where they realize their options. So he says, look, there's been people like this before. If they're false prophets, they'll get destroyed in one way or another, and their followers will disband. If they are real, and this really is the work of God, then nothing we can do can stop it. So let's pull back and just let them let this play out. I don't know where his heart is in this, but I do kind of love that in this Sanhedrin type setting, he is willing to say, if they be of God. I mean, that's what he says in 39. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. He's presenting this potential that this might be true. That's a big stance to take as a member of the Sanhedrin. And it creates a space for peace. It creates breathing room so that these apostles can go and can continue in their preaching. I just think it's kind of similar in a way to what we see with King Lamoni's father in the Book of Mormon, where he, I mean, he's actually converting, but because of that, you know, that discourse he sends out, seven other cities end up converting because he opens up a way for the missionaries to go out and preach. That, that just little gesture opens up this flood. And that's kind of what happens here. It's, it gives them space to go back home. In fact, I love the way the chapter ends. In 41, it says they were rejoicing. So they're sent off. And they're rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach of Jesus Christ. They will continue to sing. They will do it anywhere the Spirit prompts them to. And they will be unafraid 
and they even will rejoice when things don't go their way. I don't think these two are rejoicing because they feel like everything's going to be fine and they're never going to get thrown in prison again. What they know is they can get out of prison if they need to. And if God needs them to stay there, they'll stay. They'll sing on any stage with any microphone that's put in front of them. That's what they've promised to do. And they find joy in keeping that promise. And that to me is inspiring. Hey, you guys, welcome back. This is the creative side of week 27, at least the preview. So for those of you who are watching on YouTube or maybe listening on the podcast, I'm going to walk you through a preview of the three object lessons. And those of you who are sticking around for the full course, just keep watching and I'll show you how to pull off each one and then give you the printables and the notes so that you can pull them off at home or in a classroom setting and help your kids understand these doctrines just a little bit better. Okay, let's hit you with the supplies list first. Your first object lesson is designed to teach us about the 12 apostles, but ideally it's supposed to also teach about how the Lord blessed them with the gift of the Holy Ghost. This week we see the apostles become empowered with the gift of the Holy Ghost and then are able to do miraculous things in the Savior's name. And I think there's a really cool way to show that. And it applies to the apostles in our day and the apostles in this day that we're studying. So I think it's got lots of good application. To pull it off, you're going to need 12 balloons, one to represent each of the apostles. I did find that the smaller size balloons worked better for me. You're going to create this giant ring that can hover in the air, and you really want to have very unified balloons, meaning like they need to be the same basic size. You don't want to go for the big 12-inch party balloons. You want to go one size down. So like a 7-inch, a 9-inch works really well, somewhere in that range. You need 12 of those, and then you need a hair dryer, and you'll be able to pull this one off. I did find glue dots worked particularly well on this object lesson as well. So if you happen to have those on hand, or if you're doing a quick run to Walmart to get your balloons, grab a pack of glue dots as well, and that'll make your life just a little bit easier. Okay, that's your first one. The second one, this is goals week on our chart. So I'm trying to help you, since it's the beginning of a new quarter, I'm trying to help you reorient your kids on their goals, even just to bring them back to mind so that we can take advantage of that children and youth program where our kids set goals and work to achieve them. For me, since it's summer and my kids tend to coast and get sort of lazy and bored in the summer, I think this is a really good week to focus in on what we can do better. So I'm creating what I've called goal smashing cubes and you'll find these in the printable this week. Basically, it's a way for your family, each individually to set goals and put some incentives inside. And then once you've earned those by the end of the month, you find a creative way to smash them. I'll walk you through the whole process, but I'm hoping that it's a way to take however you did in June, do better in July on all your goals, and then have a fun way to celebrate it at the end of the month. So I'll walk you through that one next. The third one is talking about unity. We are asked, especially a lot lately, by our prophet and our apostles to find ways to seek unity as a people, to bring people and help them feel comfortable without compromising our standards or our beliefs, to find ways to make and keep peace. And I think it's interesting that you get to see a taste of that in this week's study, especially if, as you study that those early disciples and followers who lived all things in common and tried to share. What's interesting is you also get the experience of Ananias and Sapphira who choose to hold something back and you see the consequence of that. So to teach this idea of why it's worth it to be unified and to give all, we're actually going to make friendship bracelets. I know this sounds kind of simple, but summer seems to me like the perfect time to do this kind of craft. We're going to, I'm going to teach you how you can teach this principle of the gospel about everybody doing their part and bringing something in and creating a beautiful pattern in the process. And also talk about 
what happens when we break that pattern, when we choose not to consecrate or not be all in, how does that impact things? So for that one, supplies wise, you just need some string. If you have like a waxed linen cord, you can find it on Amazon or in any craft store, that works really well for beads. You just wanna make sure that your cord that you're choosing is smaller than your bead size, because these kind of bracelets, you make them for guys or girls, they work really well with a certain kind of bead. So for me, I grabbed some cord at Walmart, and then while I was there, I also grabbed a big pack of glass beads, and if you have those on hand, even pony beads would work, anything like that, you're just trying to show the weave. So grab whatever supplies you already have, or make a quick run to the craft store, and you'll be good to go. All right, that's all your supplies. Let's get started. Thanks for being here, you guys. That's it for week 27. I hope you enjoy it. Just remember, this is not a list of things you have to get done. This is just a springboard to help you teach creatively, and I hope it helps. If you need more help, you're welcome to join me on Instagram. Monday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, I'll pop on and do a quick live to chat through the insights and hopefully have some time for the creative. Sometimes there's so much to talk about in the actual doctrine that we don't get as much time for the creative, but I'm trying to do that a little more balanced. So you can come join me there. If you can't catch it live and there's too much going on for your 4th of July holiday, then come find me later. You can always catch the live later. Just watch for my feed for about a week and it'll be available for you. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy your week, you guys. If you have questions or there's things that I missed, please feel free to leave me a comment on YouTube or pop over on the discussion boards if you're in the full course and you can leave me a picture or a question or just a comment about what's working for you and Hopefully that'll help all of us learn a little bit better together. So we're all in this together, you guys. So I hope you enjoy this week and then come back next week for even more in the Book of Acts. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.